A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. John. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Well, my beloved friends, I wish you a most blessed solemnity of Pentecost. We celebrate the birth of the church, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit 2,000 years ago on the disciples gathered in the upper room. And as was the case for our last episode, as we considered the gospel for the solemnity of the ascension, which focused in on the Great Commission, which didn't mention the ascension of our Lord, in like manner here for today's gospel, we have a passage taken from John, John chapter 20. This is the evening of the resurrection of our Lord. He appears to the disciples in the upper room. And yes, he breathes on them. He communicates his spirit. But is this the same event that is later described in the second chapter of the Acts of the Apostles? Is this the Feast of Pentecost? No, this is Easter Sunday. And so technically speaking, the gospel does not speak of the event of Pentecost, which occurred some 50 days later. In fact, the Greek term Pentecost means 50, as in 50 days. So 50 days later, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the apostles in that very same place, in the upper room in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion. So what gives? When you look at this gospel, you recognize that there is an impartation of the Holy Spirit. Clearly, Jesus, in appearing to the disciples miraculously in the upper room, he communicates his peace. Shalom, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Receive the Holy Spirit. And it says that he breathed on them. Now, this passage is the passage that we dealt with for the second Sunday of Easter, otherwise known as Divine Mercy Sunday. So I'm sure that many of you who are followers of this podcast are quite familiar with the exegesis for this passage. I'm not going to go over that again, but suffice it to say, Jesus here is communicating. He states it here, receive the Holy Spirit, he declares. But what kind of, of impartation is this? Some refer to this passage as the Johannine Pentecost or the Pentecost found in John's gospel, but that would be a misnomer. This really is not the same. This is not Pentecost or John's version of Pentecost. These are two separate events, completely distinct events, but they certainly are linked. They're linked because Jesus here is speaking to his disciples and he is communicating his spirit. He does breathe on them and he communicates a measure of his spirit and he communicates his spirit in a way that bequeaths to them a certain power and authority. As the father has sent me, so I send you. He's speaking of their particular mission. And he declares, furthermore, receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And so what he is communicating to his disciples here, he's communicating a measure of his spirit. He's communicating the Holy Spirit in part. But on the Feast of Pentecost, he will communicate the Holy Spirit in full. The full measure of the Spirit will be poured out on Pentecost, and they will receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Here, they're receiving the Spirit in part. And specifically, we can point to the fact that he is anointing them with the Holy Spirit in order that they would begin to apply the merits won by him on Calvary, to apply the divine mercy that he extends to each and every one of us provided we repent of our sins. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. 
prior to this communication of Christ's spirit, prior to him breathing on them in the upper room, they did not have this power nor authority. But he's vesting them now by virtue of him breathing on them in imitation of God in the book of Genesis, who breathes into the nostrils of the clay that he had formed, the breath of life, the ruach. And as a result of God breathing, Adam became a living being. And here we find a recreation. Jesus, who is God, the God-man, breathes on his disciples and communicates to them a measure of his spirit, but not the spirit in full. So this is a prelude, a prelude to Pentecost. I want to point out to you the fact that when you turn to Luke's version of Easter Sunday, of Resurrection Sunday, we find here an explicit mention of what will take place on Pentecost. Return with me to Luke chapter 24 and verse 49. And this verse appears in the context of Luke's account of what unfolded on Easter Sunday, which we can easily correlate with what we find in today's gospel from John chapter 20. He's describing Jesus' post-resurrection appearance to the disciples. And in this verse, verse 49, Jesus speaks of the fact that he is communicating. He's sending the Spirit upon the disciples. And we know that to be true because in John chapter 20, he declares, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them. He communicates a measure of the Spirit. He anoints them for their ministry, their ministry of reconciliation. He gives them the power and the authority to forgive or to retain sins. So it says here, and behold, I send, present tense, the promise of my Father upon you. But then he goes on and states, but... Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. I'm going to say that again. But stay in the city, in Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power from on high. So we find here Jesus speaking of the fact that he is, in present tense, sending the Spirit upon them. We know that to be true because in John chapter 20, Jesus explicitly states, receive the Holy Spirit. So he communicates a measure of the Spirit. But then here, in the second part of this verse, it states, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And that is a reference to an allusion to an anticipation of the Feast of Pentecost when he would pour out the abundance of his Spirit or the full measure of his Spirit. He's speaking of the promised indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so here, Luke is contextualizing what is taking place here in the upper room. They are, the disciples are receiving the Holy Spirit in part, but Jesus declares, stay in the city, remain in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. So I share this with you just so that we can contextualize what we find in the Johannine account of what unfolded on Easter Sunday. Jesus does communicate a measure of his spirit, but not the fullness of his spirit. That would take place on the Feast of Pentecost. So, with that said, why don't we turn our attention to our first reading, which is taken from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2. And similar to our experience last week, the gospel did not mention the ascension. We had to turn to our first reading from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, which gave us a detailed account of what took place on that fateful day, that fateful Thursday, when our Lord ascended to the right hand of the Father. And in a similar way, our gospel today does not explicitly describe the events that unfolded on Pentecost Sunday, but nevertheless, in our first reading, which is taken from the second chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, we do have the full account of what unfolded on that fateful day. And so we're going to take this a portion at a time, and we begin here. This is Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, a sound came from heaven, like the rush of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began 
to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now let's stop there for a second. Now here we find a description of what unfolded. It says here, when the day of Pentecost had come. Now Pentecost was a Jewish feast. It was one of the three major pilgrimage festivals that were observed by the Jews annually. And in fact, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 23, we have a description of this feast, otherwise known as Shavuot in the Hebrew. And we read here in verses 15 through 16, And you shall count from the morrow after the Sabbath. From that day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. Seven full weeks they shall be, counting fifty days to the morrow after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a cereal offering of new grain to the Lord. Close quote. So here we have a description of the Feast of Weeks, of Shavuot, which was a festival, a harvest festival, a spring festival that followed the Feast of the First Fruits, which followed the Passover. And so the three major pilgrimage festivals were Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Those were the three major pilgrimage festivals. And all male, able-bodied Jews were required to make pilgrimage to the holy city of Jerusalem and to offer sacrifice in the temple as they observed these three major pilgrimage festivals. And this particular festival, the festival known as Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, this is a springtime festival that took place in late May, early June. And this was the spring festival that followed. If we back up, you have the Passover feast. And the Passover feast, we know that Jesus Christ offered himself on Calvary. He, the Lamb of God, was slain on the feast of Passover. As the Passover lambs were being slaughtered, the true Lamb of God was being crucified, pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. And we know that three days later, he rose from the dead. St. Paul refers to him as the first fruits of our redemption. And he, it's not a coincidence here, not only was he sacrificed on the feast of Passover, but he was raised with all glory and power on the feast of first fruits. Then we jump forward. 50 days after the feast of first fruits, we have the feast of weeks, which is another harvest festival. Now, going back to the Feast of First Fruits, the offering that was to be made there was a barley offering, which is a lesser grain. But 50 days later on the Feast of Weeks, we're talking seven weeks later, seven times seven is 49. And on the 50th day, the word Pentecost means 50, on the 50th day, they were to present to the Lord an offering, a grain offering, a wheat offering to the Lord from their harvest. So I just want to lay that out there for you so that you understand that there is a very explicit feast, a Jewish feast that is being alluded to here in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, that's the 50th day. That's what the word Pentecost means from the Greek. Shavuot, that is the feast, the feast of weeks, seven weeks, seven times seven is 49, and on the 50th day, as it states here, seven full weeks shall they be. That is seven full weeks from that Feast of First Fruits, counting 50 days to the morrow after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a cereal offering of new grain to the Lord. And so I hope that this is helpful. I want to give you kind of this Old Testament foundational background to this feast that the disciples, as Jews themselves, would be celebrating. And so just to set the scene, you have a throng of pilgrims who have traveled from near and far to observe this feast, which explains what we're going to find later on in the second half of our first reading as it describes the multitudes that are gathered in Jerusalem for this Jewish feast. Now, this Jewish feast, by the way, by the time of the first century, had taken on a very special meaning. Because this feast, by the time of our blessed Lord, 
was now associated with the giving of the law on Sinai. That is very significant, my friends. You see, they saw Pentecost or Shavuot as the commemoration of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And there are incredible typological connections between the giving of the law on Sinai and what we find here with the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. And so here we have two mountains, essentially. We have Mount Sinai and we have Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And I want to bring you back, in fact, if you turn with me to the 19th chapter of Exodus, Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 through 18. And just to set the scene, you know, according to Jewish tradition, it is popularly held that when the Israelites departed, when they left Egypt and crossed the Red Sea, they journeyed some 40 days to Mount Sinai. It took them 40 days. This is according to Jewish tradition. 40 days to arrive at Sinai. And Moses ascended Mount Sinai. And 10 days later, he returned. He descended from the mountain in order to deliver the law. Well, that pious tradition correlates beautifully with what we find in the Gospels. Because Jesus, as we noted last week, after his resurrection, we're told by Luke in the Acts of the Apostles that he appeared to his disciples for a period of 40 days before ascending to the Father, Jesus being the new Moses. And he instructed his disciples to remain in Jerusalem and to pray and to prepare for the outpouring of the Spirit. Ten days later, the disciples are gathered in the upper room and the Lord pours out his Spirit, which is likened to the new law. Now, I'm going to unpack this with you. Let's take a look at what it describes here as it describes the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. So we're here in Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. We read as follows, and I quote, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain, and Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Let's stop there. So we find this description of this incredible and glorious event. God's presence descended upon that mountain. And it's interesting the language is being employed here. It speaks of thunders and lightnings and thick cloud upon the mountain which describes the the glory cloud the shekinah glory cloud the presence of the lord descended upon that mountain that mountain was on fire and the people in the camp trembled now we find if you were to compare and contrast the account here in exodus 19 with what we find in the acts of the apostles chapter 2 describing what unfolded on the Feast of Pentecost with the outpouring of the Spirit, we would find incredible correlations here, incredible connections. The typological connections are just, they're absolutely unmistakable. And what I want to do here is I want to compare and contrast these two events. And I want to draw out to you some of these incredible connections. We have here in the giving of the law a foreshadowing of what we find unfolding in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, on the Feast of Pentecost. And so we begin with this notion of the Israelites. The Israelites, as I mentioned before, according to pious Jewish tradition, they journey for 40 days from Passover to Mount Sinai. Now contrast that with the New Covenant. Jesus, the Passover lamb, leads his disciples for 40 days to the Mount of Olives. And remember that he departed, he ascended to the Father from where? From the Mount of of olives. We continue. Moses ascends the mountain of God, that is Mount Sinai. Jesus ascends to the Father in heaven. Ten days later, on the 50th day, Moses delivers the law on Mount Sinai. Ten days later, on the 50th day, Jesus delivers the new law, his spirit on Mount Zion. And as I mentioned before, we see in the New Covenant, the recognition that the giving of the Spirit on Pentecost was the giving of the new law. And we're going to touch upon that in greater detail momentarily. Let's continue. 
this event, that is the giving of the law and the old covenant, marks the birth of the Israelite nation. You contrast that with the new covenant. This event, Pentecost, marks the birth of the new Israel, namely the Catholic Church. You look at what unfolded in Exodus 19. God delivers his law, writing them on stone tablets. Whereas God in the new covenant, on Pentecost, he delivers his new law, writing them on tablets of flesh. On Mount Sinai, God manifests his presence with wind, fire, thunder. And when it mentions thunder, the the Hebrew word employed there is kolot, which also means voices or languages. And that's fascinating when you consider, when you compare and contrast this with what took place on Pentecost. Because on the Feast of Pentecost, God manifests his presence with what? With wind, with fire, and with voices. That is tongues, languages. They began to speak in tongues, as we're going to see as we read the remainder of our first reading. On Sinai, when Moses delivered the law, the Israelites broke the covenant, and 3,000 were struck dead. And this is the golden calf incident. Remember that as Moses prepared to descend from the mountain to deliver God's law, the people grew impatient. And they fashioned for themselves an idol, a golden idol, the golden calf, which they began to worship. And so as a result of that rebellion, as a result of their sin and their apostasy, 3,000 were struck dead that day. We'll compare and contrast that with what took place on Pentecost. On Pentecost, when Jesus delivers the new law of the Spirit, When Jesus, the new Moses, delivers the new law, which is the Holy Spirit, written on our hearts, we're told that 3,000 were baptized and saved that day. Now, unfortunately, our first reading does not give us the full account of what took place on the Feast of Pentecost. After the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Simon Peter begins to preach, to proclaim the good news of salvation. And we are told, if you jump with me just very briefly, just hold your place there, And jump with me to the Acts of the Apostles. I just want to give you this this one verse here. At the end of his sermon, in verse 37, it states, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And in verse 38, St. Peter responds, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the Holy Spirit. And so what happened? Verse 41, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now what's fascinating about this is the language here. Now when they heard this, heard what? The word of God. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. What happens when you're cut to the heart? You die. You are slain. And so they were cut to the heart, not literally, but spiritually, with the sword of the Spirit, which the Bible says is the Word of God. And so St. Peter, wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, he cut them to the heart. They were slain by the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, but not to death, but to new life. Why? Because they were baptized. How many? 3,000 were baptized that day. 3,000 were born again to newness of life in Christ. And so here we have an unmistakable connection with the event that we've been looking at in Exodus chapter 19. That is the giving of the law. In the old covenant at Sinai, 3,000 were slain. In the new covenant on Zion, 3,000 were brought back to life through baptism. They were slain by the sword of the Spirit and brought back to the newness of life through baptism and the regeneration of the soul. Finally, Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, is the feast of the spring harvest. And we contrast that with Pentecost, which is the feast of the harvest of souls, as is evidenced by the 3,000 who were added to the number of believers that day. That was a harvest of souls And that harvest of souls continues to this very day. So there are just incredible typological connections between what we find in Exodus chapter 19 
and what we find in Acts chapter 2 with the account of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is the new law. And speaking of the giving of the new law of the Spirit, I want to underscore this by drawing your attention to some of the ancient prophecies concerning the outpouring of the Spirit, the giving of a new law. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31, which states, and I quote, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Close quote. And so here we find this promise, this promise of a new covenant. And he contrasts this new covenant, this new covenant that he will make wherein he will put his law within us. He will write it upon our hearts. He contrasts this new covenant with the old covenant. He says, not like the covenant which I made with the fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. And this is clearly a reference to what took place in Exodus chapter 32, the golden calf incident, which took place at the foot of Mount Sinai. And he's contrasting this with this new covenant. Essentially, what he's describing here is Sinai and Zion, the old covenant and the new covenant. In the new covenant, he's pointing forward prophetically to Pentecost when the Lord, the new Moses, would pour out, would deliver the new law, which is the Holy Spirit written not on stone tablets, but on our hearts, on the tablets of our hearts. I will put my law within them. And I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I'll give you another text that further elucidates, I think, our, our understanding and our appreciation of, of the promise of the Father that did not begin with Jesus and, and his allusion to God's promises. But no, this is found in the pages of the Old Testament. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 24 and 26 through 27. We read, and I quote, For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Verse 26, A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. Close quote. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. He's speaking of the promise of the spirit that will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in what? My statutes. And be careful to observe my ordinances, my commandments, my law. I will put my law within you. That's the Holy Spirit, the new law, written on our hearts. Powerful. Now let's jump back to Acts chapter 2 and let's conclude the remainder of Luke's account of the Feast of Pentecost. We pick up in verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were amazed and wondered, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans 
and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Close quote. Now here in the second half of our first reading for this Pentecost Sunday, we have a description of the reaction, the response of the pilgrims and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the throngs of of pilgrims who who gathered to celebrate this great feast of weeks, Shavuot, or Pentecost, who were present there when the Lord poured out his spirit, when the new Moses delivered his law, that is, pouring out his spirit upon the hearts of the 120 gathered in the upper room. And as the 120, who were now infilled with the Holy Spirit, were praising God and speaking in tongues, those who were gathered in Jerusalem heard them praising God, heard them speaking in tongues, and reckoned that they were inebriated, they were intoxicated, they were so full of joy, it resembled intoxication. They were inebriated by the Holy Spirit. And so they were responding, responding to what was unfolding in the upper room. And they were bewildered. And it specifically centers in on and focuses in on the language aspect of it. They were speaking in tongues, And what that means is that they each, these disciples, these apostles, now infilled with the Holy Spirit, were given the capacity to speak in different tongues. And the people were amazed because these Galileans were speaking in tongues that they did not learn, (laughs) that they did not know. But the Holy Spirit was giving them utterance, was empowering them to speak. And those who were gathered there understood what they were saying. And that must have been a marvel to behold. And this focus on language is is critical because what we find here at Pentecost is an undoing of what we find in the book of Genesis in the account of the Tower of Babel. And I want to briefly invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And I want to highlight for you here the typological connections because they are quite fascinating if you remember beginning in verse one it says now the whole earth had one language and few words and as men migrated from the east they found a plain in the land of shinar and settled there and they said to one another come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar then they said come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, Let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Close quote. Now, what I'd like to do is very briefly, as I did earlier, is compare and contrast this passage, the account of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, with that account that we've been examining from Acts chapter 2, namely the account that Luke furnishes us of the Feast of Pentecost. And I want to draw out for you the incredible and unmistakable typological connections between these two passages, because Pentecost, I'd submit to you, is the undoing of the curse of Babel. And so I want to begin here with the very first verse. It says here, Genesis 11, verse 1, Now the whole earth had one language and few words. So all of humanity is represented here. You compare and contrast that with what we find in Acts chapter 2. It says in verse 5, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So all of humanity is represented at Pentecost as well. Furthermore, You have in the account of the Tower of Babel, man, motivated by pride, wishes to exalt himself. He wants to ascend to heaven without God. 
And we find this, if you look at, for example, verse 4, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name, a Shem in Hebrew, for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. So clearly, man here, humanity, filled with pride, is desiring to exalt itself and to ascend to heaven, but without God. So man wishes to ascend to heaven, and we find in the Acts of the Apostles on the Feast of Pentecost, we have God descending to man, God pouring out his spirit upon man from heaven. So God descends from heaven to man. Furthermore, as I mentioned, when you quote verse 4, man here is wishing to make a name. The Hebrew is Shem, a Shem for himself. In the account of Pentecost, God's name was praised and exalted, not man's. You find that in verses 22 through 24. In the account of the Tower of Babel, we find God confusing languages and tongues. In the account of the Tower of Babel, you have God determining to confuse their tongues, their languages. It says in verse 7, Come, let us go down and confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth. And in the account that we find in Acts chapter 2, we find the Holy Spirit imparting the gift of tongues. And we read that in verses 5 through 10. So we find here an undoing of the curse of Babel. Furthermore, when you continue with the Genesis text, at Babel, they are confused because they do not understand. Just look at verse 9 for that. You contrast that with the account of Pentecost. At Pentecost, they are confused because they do understand. They're scratching their heads, mouths agape, because they do understand one another, because of this gift of tongues. In the Genesis account, God scattered the people in judgment to the four corners of the earth. Look at verse 8 for that. In the account we find in Acts of the Apostles, God sent the apostles to the four corners of the earth to spread the gospel and to make disciples, to gather in that harvest of souls. And so what we find in Genesis 11 is God scattering the people. What we find at Pentecost is the Lord beginning the ingathering sending the apostles, scattering them to the four corners of the earth so they could draw all men to him, so they could make disciples of all nations. This account of Babel tells us how man was fractured and divided through sin. In the Pentecost account, we find how man was reunited and made into the family of God by the Holy Spirit. And so these are but a few of the typological connections that we can draw as we compare and contrast these two events. Pentecost is the new covenant giving of the law, the law of the Spirit. Furthermore, it's the undoing of Babel. And there's so much more that we can explore here, but in the interest of time, why don't we push forward to our responsorial psalm, which is Psalm 104. And this psalm, Psalm 104, celebrates, it's a hymn that extols and celebrates God as creator, the glory of God as revealed in his creation, which is brought forth, maintained, and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Remember, you can go back to Genesis. The Holy Spirit does not make his entrance at Pentecost, but rather you got to go back to the very beginning of the Bible, the account of the creation, for it declares that the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the waters of the deep. And so the Spirit of God, the Ruach of God, was there from the very beginning and participated in the work of creation. And so let's not forget that. So here, the church has chosen this psalm, which celebrates and extols God for his creation, which is brought forth, is maintained, and renewed by the power of the Spirit, which is why for our response to this particular psalm, we draw this from verse 30. Lord, send out your spirit and renew the face of the earth. Beginning in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, thou art very great. 
O Lord, how manifold are thy works. The earth is full of thy creatures. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. When thou takest away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created. Thou renewest the face on the ground. Close quote. And finally, our epistle is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12, verses 3b through 7, and verses 12 through 13. St. Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of working, but it is the same God who inspires them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so here we have St. Paul in writing to the church in Corinth. He's writing of the effects of baptism, that through baptism we receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What the apostles experienced at Pentecost was this very indwelling and outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we, through baptism, we partake of that same outpouring. We receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We're made temples of the Holy Spirit. And furthermore, at confirmation, we're sealed with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We experience our own personal Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit equips us and furnishes us with special grace gifts, the charismata. And these gifts are to be employed for the common good, for the building up of the body of Christ. We're to exercise these gifts. And each of us has received special gifts unique to us that we are to employ and exercise for the sake of evangelization, for the sake of spreading the gospel, for the sake of building up the body of Christ and expanding the kingdom of God. And so Paul reminds us, listen, let's apply this to ourselves. We were all made to drink of one spirit. And as we celebrate this great feast of Pentecost, we must be mindful of the fact that by virtue of our baptism and our confirmation, we have been anointed and appointed to bear much fruit. We must be cognizant, cognizant of the fact that our Lord is going to hold us accountable for the stewardship of these gifts. And we, as we approach this great feast of Pentecost, it provides us with a golden opportunity to examine our own consciences and to examine the quality of our relationship and communion with the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, provided we allow him to. Because oftentimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we thwart the work of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us in order to sanctify us, provided we allow him free reign. But I don't know about you, but I recognize the many ways in which I thwart the plan of God and the movement of the Spirit in my own life. And so as we approach this feast, I would submit to you that it is a, a golden opportunity for us to examine our souls and to seek to renew our communion with the Holy Spirit and to give the Holy Spirit permission to reign in our lives in order to sanctify us and what's more, in order to use us for the building up of the body of Christ because God has a mission for each and every one of us. Each of us is anointed and appointed for a particular mission. Do you know what your mission is? And furthermore, are you fully engaged in fulfilling it? Questions to ponder, my friends. Now, I want to conclude, as is my custom, by reading a few brief but relevant passages from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And I invite you to turn with me to paragraph 731, which reads as follows, and I quote, On the day of Pentecost, when the seven weeks of Easter had come to an end, Christ's Passover is fulfilled in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, manifested, given, and communicated as a divine person of his fullness 
Christ, the Lord, pours out the Spirit in abundance. In paragraph 739, we read, Because the Holy Spirit is the anointing of Christ, it is Christ who, as the head of the body, pours out the Spirit among his members to nourish, heal, and organize them in their mutual functions, to give them life, send them to bear witness, and associate them to his self-offering to the Father and to his intercession for the whole world. And finally, I invite you to turn with me to paragraph 1076. And on this note, I close. This paragraph states the following, and I quote, The church was made manifest to the world on the day of Pentecost by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Spirit ushers in a new era in the, quote, dispensation of the mystery, unquote, the age of the church, during which Christ manifests, makes present, and communicates his work of salvation through the liturgy of his church until he comes. Close quote. I'm going to repeat that last section. This age of the church, during which Christ manifests, makes present, and communicates his work of salvation through the liturgy of his church until he comes. Unquote. In this age of the church, Christ now lives and acts in and with his church in a new way appropriate to this new age. He acts through the sacraments in what the common tradition of the East and West calls, quote, the sacramental economy, unquote. This is the communication or, quote, dispensation, unquote, of the fruits of Christ's Paschal mystery in the celebration of the church's, quote, sacramental, unquote, liturgy, close quote. Now, that's a rather lengthy quote, but I hope you were able to mine its significance. It speaks of the birth of the church, Pentecost. The church was made manifest to the world on the day of Pentecost by the outpouring of the Spirit. And the gift of the Spirit ushers in a new era in the dispensation of the mystery, the age of the church. It states furthermore that Christ continues to manifest, make present, and communicate his work of salvation through the liturgy of the church. The liturgy of the church through the sacraments, through the holy sacrifice of the Mass. I always want to connect our reflection on the Word of God. I want to connect that to the Eucharist, to the liturgy that we are celebrating. And as we prepare to celebrate the birth of the church, as we prepare to commemorate the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost 2,000 years ago, let us be mindful that the Holy Spirit continues to be poured out upon us to this very day. The Lord continues His work, building up the body of Christ. Furthermore, the Lord nourishes us for our journey through the power of the Holy Spirit in the sacred liturgy. We are fed, we are nourished by the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord. All the sacraments that are celebrated are made manifest through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the soul of the church, active and alive, vivifying the members of the church. And so as we prepare to celebrate this great feast, let us be mindful of the fact that we are to continue to drink deeply from this wellspring, from the Holy Spirit, for we all drink of the same Spirit. We continue to drink of the Spirit when we receive the Word of God, which is proclaimed and preached. We receive the Holy Spirit. We drink deeply from the Holy Spirit whenever we receive the sacraments. And we, in a short while, are going to have the opportunity to receive the Lord again at the Sunday liturgy as we commemorate this great feast. Just be mindful of the fact that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit continues to move with great power in the church today. Christ continues to pour out the abundance of his Spirit upon each and every one of us. And it is through the Holy Spirit, in, with, and through the Holy Spirit that we continue to be nourished by him. I share this with you, my friends, because I want to exhort you as I close this episode to invoke the Holy Spirit Invoke the Holy Spirit as we approach this great solemnity. And at Mass, 
please invoke. I urge you, I exhort you to invoke the Holy Spirit and listen to the prayers of the liturgy, the prayers of the priest, especially at the moment of the epiclesis, as he calls down the Holy Spirit to confect the sacrament. May we also pray along with the priest that the Holy Spirit would not only sanctify the gifts of bread and wine, but that we who receive these gifts, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, that we also might be sanctified and made holy. Oh, my friends, so much more can be said. This is such a tremendous mystery of our faith and gift to us as believers. But in the interest of time, I'm going to leave it right there. And I want to thank you for taking the time to join with me. And I hope and pray, as always, that this episode, that this podcast has been and continues to be a source of blessing and inspiration to you. If it has been, praise God for that. I want to encourage you, if you're watching this episode via our YouTube channel, to please be sure to like and subscribe and comment in the comment section. By liking and subscribing and commenting, you indicate to YouTube the value in this content, and they're more apt to push these videos out to more and more viewers. And that's the whole point of this channel. It's to make Christ known. So I encourage you to please like and subscribe. Furthermore, I encourage you to consider becoming a supporter of this podcast, to become a patron, a co-producer of these episodes. You can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Hector Molina. On that page, you'll see a number of different levels of patronage. And for as little as a few dollars a month, you can become a co-producer, a patron of this podcast. And speaking of patrons, I want to thank and acknowledge my amazing patrons who continue to support and encourage me in this endeavor. I wouldn't be able to do this without you. So I want to thank you for your continued support. So if you too would like to become a patron and partner with me in this endeavor to make Christ known, please visit patreon.com forward slash Hector Molina. Well, my friends, until we gather again next week to consider the readings for another great solemnity, that of the most holy Trinity, my prayer continues to be for you in the words of the Apostle Paul. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, may the word of God continue to richly dwell in you. God love you.